I would like to invite your attention to the third chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians, and specifically verses 1 through 3. Now, I'm going to ask a, a question. Please don't answer out loud because you, you may uh, be embarrassed by your answer a little bit later on. But here's my question. Would you rather be happy or joyful? Philippians chapter, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. Is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote his letters always with the same goal in mind, which was to provide godly instruction and godly counsel for his recipients. And, of course, that's no different with his letter to the church at Philippi. He picks up his pen to, ad to address really two problems. First is the problem they were facing from outside of the church, and then second to address the problem they were facing from inside the church. As we've seen in our study, the problem from outside the church was one of persecution, while the problem inside the church was potential division, a potential disruption of the unity that should characterize God's people. And Paul understood that problems, regardless of their source, regardless of where they spring from, they can and will, if we let them, Rob us of the joy that God, our Heavenly Father, desires for each one of His children to experience, and not to experience infrequently, but to experience on a regular basis. Now, as we've seen in our study that Paul and the church, the believers at Philippi, they had a warm and close relationship, and so based upon that relationship, he believed that he could write to them and counsel them and work out the problem that existed between two members of the church. And as they applied the gospel to the problem, as they applied the gospel to the disagreement that existed in the church, they would experience the joy of the Lord that comes from the recognition of God's grace among them. It is my prayer that we as a church would never discount the work of God among us, but rather we would always delight, find delight in His work among us. It is not a light thing for God to work amongst His people, and it is awful when God does work among His people and we treat it as common or ordinary. We find no joy or we take no delight in that. So Paul's desire for them was to experience joy even as they dealt with the problems that they were facing. His desire for them was to experience the joy that was available to them because they were in Christ. Now here's an important lesson for us. We should and we can as Christians experience joy even during the most difficult and trying times of our lives. And if we would just stop and think about that for a moment, isn't that the time that we need joy? 
Do you think that God's going to abandon us during those difficult times and just leave us to our own devices and have to deal with all these negative feelings, these neg negative emotions without coming to us and offering us a, a real solution to that? Now, let's be clear. Paul was not denying that problems existed in the church of Philippi. He was, wasn't looking at this situation through rose-colored glasses. Paul was a realist about the problem, while at the same time, he was also a realist about the power of the gospel to solve the problem. He believed that the gospel was more than enough, was powerful enough to solve the problem that existed amongst the members. He believed the gospel would also empower them to withstand the persecution that they were facing. And who better to understand persecution than the Apostle Paul? You read his life, and it's a life story of persecution. So he understood better than many, many people the fact that persecution is for us as Christians a fact of life. Yet he understood that even though the persecution may not go away and the believers at Philippi, the church at Philippi, may have to continue to deal with that as long as they existed. He wanted them to understand that despite the persecution, they could still rejoice in the Lord. And so he gives them some very wise counsel. And his wisdom for them then is good wisdom for us even today. The lesson is we can experience joy in spite of our outward circumstances. And so we ask, how is this possible? Well, it's possible when we realize what our source of joy is. And that's the first thing that the Apostle Paul points them to. Look again at verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now let's deal with this word, finally. It would be easy for us to read this word and think, well, Paul is trying to wrap up his letter. Uh, and so that's why he chooses the word finally. Now, there's a danger if we understand that word in that way. What's the danger? Well, it's like when the preacher says, in conclusion, I try not to say that. You know why? I would rather come to an abrupt halt than say in conclusion, because the moment I say conclusion, you close your Bibles, you pack your purse up, you know, you're looking for your phone, and you're ready to bug out of here. And I may, I may say the most, uh, maybe the most intelligent thing I may say may be in my conclusion, and, and you miss it. So when Paul says finally here, don't close your Bible and think, well, he said everything he needs to say. No, because he has two more chapters of wisdom for us. Say, so, well, why does he use the word finally? Well, the word really means furthermore or now then. So we could read verse 1 and, and, and it could legitimately say this, Furthermore, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Or now then, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. What's he doing here? He is transitioning from what he has previously said in chapters 1 and 2 to now helping us understand how we can rejoice in the Lord. And we know that one of the dominant themes in the book of Philippians is that of joy, of rejoicing. And so he says, finally, or furthermore, or now then, rejoice in the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read a statement like that, 
my struggle is not necessarily understanding rejoicing. My struggle is in how. We read these commands, rejoice in the Lord, and we know something of joy. And so we don't struggle as much with what that means as we do how do we experience it. How do I experience this joy, this rejoicing in the Lord? And I think it's very legitimate for us, and it's very wise for us. And as you read the Scriptures, as you study the Scriptures, ask those kinds of questions. The reason we don't get more out of our individual time in the Word is simply because we don't, many times we don't ask the right questions. We need to learn to ask these good questions. So, how do I rejoice in the Lord? Well, before I try and show you that from the Scriptures, let's make sure we understand what joy is. First of all, biblical joy is not the happiness that the world offers us. It's completely different from that. Those who are not in Christ, those who have not been born again, they can never experience the joy that you and I can experience as believers. It is not possible for the unsaved man or woman to experience the, God, the joy of God the way that you and I can. Now, we ought to rejoice in that fact because God is allowing us to experience something that many, many people simply can't experience. So the, the best that the unsaved man or woman can hope for is happiness. And many people go to great lengths. They expend tremendous amounts of energy. They will spend a, a fortune trying to do what? They're pursuing happiness. They want to be happy. Only they discover that happiness is fickle. It's fleeting. It's elusive. Many times, it is out of reach and is out of their control. So, well, why is this true? Because the happiness that the world has to offer is dependent upon circumstances. If things go their way, then they're happy. But if our circumstances turn against us, then what happens to our happiness? It's like Kansas said, it's dust in the wind. It blows away. Happiness is, as one writer said, closely related to chance. Now think about this. You spin the big wheel, and it's got all kinds of things on it, and you're hoping it lands on that one slot that says happiness. And everything else outside of that one slot brings you unhappiness. What are the odds of you spinning the wheel and hitting just that one spot? Not very good, are they? But that's what many people spend their lives doing. But God has something better than fleeting happiness as totally dependent upon our circumstances. God has joy for His children. And the joy that God has for us as His children is never dependent upon our external circumstances over which we have 
very little, if any, control. Joy, biblical joy, is an inner quality that flows out of our relationship to God. Joy is the product of our delighting in God. So Paul writes to them and says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, this may seem so basic that I shouldn't have to say it, and you'll probably go home saying, Why did he have to say that? I understood it. Okay, that's fine. In order for you to experience this joy that's available to you, you really have to believe that it's possible for you to experience this joy. I'm afraid many times as Christians, we think, well, that's good for somebody else, and that's, I'm glad that somebody else can experience this joy, but that's just not for me. It is for you. And you dishonor God when you think that way. You have to come to grips with the fact that despite Whatever you're dealing with in your life, despite whatever your external circumstances are, this joy that God has for you as his child is yours for the taking. It's yours to be experienced. So your first, the first step really is believing that it is for you. The pursuit of this joy must be driven by the belief that is for you. You must believe that God's joy is available to you. Now, you may want to make a little note in, in your Bible someplace that that word rejoice is in the present tense, which means what Paul is saying here is that it is possible for us to have an ongoing sense of joy in our lives as Christians. Joy is not a one-off activity. Happiness many times is. Joy is continual. Joy is eternal. Joy is something that we can experience each and every moment of our lives as believers. Day by day, moment by moment, year by year, week by week, whatever it is, we can experience the joy that's available to us. But again, the question is how? How? How can you and I experience this ongoing sense of joy in the Lord? Let me give you three things. First of all, number one, to experience ongoing joy, we must understand the source of joy. To experience ongoing joy, we must understand the source of joy. Say, well, what is the source of the Christian's joy? Well, notice what Paul says. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Underline those three words, in the Lord. That is the source of your joy as a Christian. You cannot experience the kind of joy that Paul has in mind apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot do it. In other words, you must be in Christ. You must be a believer. You must be born again. As we said last week, you must be born from above in order for you to rejoice in the Lord. You must be born again in order to experience the kind of joy that doesn't depend upon your circumstances. So I ask you this. Are you experiencing the joy that only can be experienced by being rightly related to Christ? Are you experiencing the joy that is part of your spiritual birthright? And I also will ask you this. Could it be that you're not experiencing this kind of joy because you haven't been born again? We should never, ever just take for granted that we have been born again. So well, what's it mean to be born again? I, listen, I, I, I'm like Paul here. I don't mind saying these things to you because it's safe. 
I'll go back to what J.C. Ryle, I read this a couple of weeks ago. Say, what's it mean to be born again? If I was going to, if you wanted to pin me down to one word, I would say this, change. Has there been a fundamental change in your life? J.C. Ryle said it is a thorough change of heart. Now think about this, of heart, emotions, your emotions, your affections are now what? Transformed before you hated God. Now you love God, you love the things of God, your will, in other words, your motivation, your determination. Before you lived for yourself, you were self-centered. Now your desire is to live for God, is to please God, and then your character. That's the overall status of your life. He goes on to say it's a resurrection, it's a new creation, it's a passing from death to life. It is the implanting in our dead hearts a new principle from above. And I think that's a wonderful definition of what it means to be born again. But you know what? We don't have to look outside of Scripture in order, and outside of this text even, in order to help us understand what it means to be born again. Look at verse 3. Paul says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What we have here is not an exhaustive list but certainly is a list that illustrates some of the characteristics that those who have been born again will demonstrate in their lives. These are not idle words by the Apostle Paul. First of all, he says, for we are the circumcision. You know what he's referring to there? Genuine believers versus false professors. He says, we are the circumcision. He's referring to those who have been born again. And so what are the characteristics of those who have been born again? He gives us three. First of all, notice this. Those who have been born again worship by the Spirit of God. They worship by the Spirit of God. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, true worship that is acceptable to God is that worship which is produced by the Spirit of God. You know, I had to have a, uh, a little meeting with myself here a while back because I realized my worship was not what it should, have, should, have, should be in the service. Yeah. I was worried about my mic or my hair or my shoes or drink of water or this or that. And it really, it really, I was really rebuked. Am I worshiping in spirit and in truth? It's so easy to come in and just... You know, most of the songs I probably could sing without the songbook. And it's so easy just to come in here and just recite those things and do them with no heart, not really mean the words that we're saying. And that's why, that's why I, I know we're not doing a real good job of it, but that five minutes before the service to calm our hearts, to examine ourselves. You know, on Sunday mornings I pray not only that my heart would be prepared to worship, but that your heart would be prepared to worship. I want you to prepare for worship just like I prepare for worship, and maybe you do it better than I do. We need to worship by the Spirit of God. That does, that, that's not saying it's just a purely emotional-driven worship. I think that's wrong and dishonoring to God. Some people judge worship by the, the kick that they get out of it or the feeling that they get out of it. That is so self-centered and selfish. 
And listen, when we worship by the Spirit of God, we may hate the style of music, but we love the words we sing because of who we're singing it to. So that's the first thing. Second, those who have truly been born again are those who glory in Christ Jesus, which means the genuine believer realizes they are nothing, they have nothing, and they are incapable of nothing apart from Christ. So therefore, they give all the credit, they give all the glory to Christ. Third, those who have been born again are those who put no confidence in the flesh. They understand, as the Bible teaches, that there is absolutely no profit in the flesh and that the life only comes from the Holy Spirit. So they put no confidence in the flesh in the way that they walk, the way that they live. Rather, they live by the power of the Spirit. So those are some characteristics of those who have been born again, those who have been born from above. So point one, to experience ongoing joy, we must understand the source of joy. Second, to experience ongoing joy, we must pursue the Lord's righteousness and peace. I have to give credit to James Montgomery Boyce uh, for this little portion of the sermon. Uh, he takes us to Romans chapter 14, verse 17, and says, For the kingdom of God, where Paul says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what I want you to see from that. Paul is describing a pattern or a progression. The words are given in a Holy Spirit-inspired order. So the, the order of these words are important, meaning that in order to experience the joy, two things have to come first. In order to experience the reality of the joy, we have to experience the reality of the first two things, which are righteousness and peace. So if we are to experience joy, please listen carefully. You must pursue holiness. If you have unconfessed sin in your life, you will not experience joy. If you have sin in your life, you're not willing to repent of that sin, forsake that sin, turn from that sin, then you will not experience joy. And every unrepentant Christian, sooner or later, will share in the experience of King David. He said, for when I kept silent, when I would not confess, when I would not repent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. What are you saying, David? He was saying, as long as I would not repent of my sin, as long as there was this unconfessed sin in my life, it was taking an emotional and physical toll on my body. The wages of sin is what? death. If there is no forsaking of sin, there is no joy. No holiness of life, there is no joy. So if you look at yourself and say, you know what, I don't think that I'm experiencing the kind of joy that's available to me that I should be or maybe even that I want to be, and I hope we all want to experience that kind of joy, well, maybe the place to look is not for some formula to make us joyful, 
but rather to examine ourselves, to engage in some serious uh, introspection, if you will, to ask the Holy Spirit to search us, to try us, and show us if there's any evil way in us. That's the beginning point. Second is peace. Well, let me back up. Think, think about this. What is it that keeps us from God? Sin. Your sins have separated. And who's our source of joy? God. So we have unconfessed sin in our life, unrepentant sin in our life. God is withholding the joy from us because he's withholding himself from us. Second, peace. Every Christian has been given peace. Can I say that again? Every Christian has been given peace. So how do you know that? Well, what did Jesus say? John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. That's pretty strong. And then he says, not as the world gives do I give to you. Is there any peace in our world? I mean, let's just be honest. Let's just, let's just, let's just put the cards on the table. Is there any peace in our world? No. But why do we turn to the world thinking we're going to find what only God can give? So, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So, here's another question. How do you and I as Christians experience this peace? Well, again, first, you must have peace with God that comes from Christ. Once we have peace with God, then and only then can we enter into peace, the peace of God. Now, keep in mind what Jesus said here. Jesus said that he leaves peace with us. You know what that means? What what do we mean when we say when somebody leaves behind a legacy? It's kind of what they're known for, right? You know what this means here when he said, peace I leave with you? Jesus is saying, here's my legacy for you. The legacy that I'm leaving for you is one of peace, my peace. Jesus did not leave his peace, his people, excuse me, a legacy of anxiety and worry. And what is the source of anxiety and worry? Now, nobody's going to like this. I don't much like saying it, but here it is. Anxiety and worry are the weeds that bloom in the soil of our distrust. That's where they come from. Our anxiety and worry reveal a lack of trust in the goodness and the sovereignty of God. And you cannot experience this ongoing sense of, of joy in the Lord if you are characterized by anxiety and worry. Anxiety and worry work against our experiencing joy. This picture may be helpful for you. Picture anxiety 
as the Great Wall of China. On the other side of that wall, there's another wall equally as large as the Great Wall of China, and it's called worry. And you know what it's keeping out? Joy. Joy. As long as our lives are characterized by anxiety and worry, we will never experience the joy that God has for us. So how do we experience the peace of God? We experience the peace of God as we submit the future to Him. Flip over one page in your Bible, probably to Philippians chapter 4. Verses 6 and 7. Paul writes, do not be anxious about, what's it say? Anything. No exception clause. There's no drop-down menu for multiple choice. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Look, look at that first part as, that's our part. That's what we have to do. Now, here's the second part. This is what God has promised to do. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, again, there's two parts of what Paul is saying here. The first is our part, and really, we could just say it's our obedience. See, what's our obedience? What's our part? To not be anxious, but to go beyond just not trying to not be anxious, to doing what? To praying in every circumstance. John read that this morning. Posture doesn't matter. We are to pray at all times. Okay? So, in order for us to experience the peace of God, number one, we make this decision. I'm not going to be anxious, but I'm not going to try and not be anxious on my own strength. No, I'm going to pray about these things that could make me anxious, that could make me worry. Now, notice what God's going to do. Here's the second part. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Circle that word will. Will. It's not hope so. It's not might. He's not giving us odds on it here. He said if there's any odds, it's 100%. Will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Righteousness and peace Lead to joy. That's the biblical progression. Righteousness, peace, joy. So, in the words of the songwriter, we experience the joy of the Lord as we trust and obey. So, to experience ongoing joy, we must understand the source of joy. That's one. Number two, to experience ongoing joy... We must pursue the Lord's righteousness and peace. And then thirdly, to experience ongoing joy, we must know and practice sound doctrine. So, you know, where do you get that from? Well, if you notice verse, in verse 2, Paul warns the church at Philippi about those who teach false doctrine. And most commentators agree that the group of people that Paul is referencing here are the Judaizers. And say, well, who were the Judaizers? Well, they were primarily a group of people made up of Jews and some Gentiles. 
But they had this nasty habit of following the Apostle Paul around to the churches that he would plant. And they would accost these new believers. And they would try and convince them that, hey, in order to really be a Christian, you've got to live like a Jew. Yes, you have to have faith in Christ, but there's also the law. So they tried to mix the gospel and the law. In Galatians, Paul says that the Judaizers proclaimed a different gospel and that they were under God's curse. You know what I see here, and this is just a little aside, I see the heart of a genuine shepherd. Say, how so? Because he knows it's his duty to protect them from false teaching and false teachers. That's why he says in verses 1 and 2, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And then he goes right on, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And you can tell by Paul's words, he has absolutely no use for this false doctrine. So Paul says, in order for me to protect your spiritual safety, I need to remind you to be on guard against false teaching. Listen, when you are not properly prepared and you're confronted with false teaching, you are in danger of becoming spiritually unstable. And once you become spiritually unstable, you're just one short step away from being out the door. Who do the cults prey on? Lots of times, unsuspecting Christians who really don't know what they believe. Or perhaps they know just enough to be a little bit dangerous. But because they're not stable in their faith, because they're not practicing sound doctrine, they're led away. And those who are spiritually unstable, again, many, many times are easy prey for false teaching. That's why you must, you must, I beg you, I plead with you, be careful what you expose yourself to. Not everybody who's on the Internet has your best interest at heart. There's plenty of heretics out there who have just enough truth to, truth to seduce you and draw you away. You get involved in this. You get caught up in this. And at first you say, well, that don't seem quite right, but you continue to listen and listen and listen. Before you know it, you're all out of whack. Practice the counsel of the Holy Spirit. You're still in Philippians 4, I hope. Look at verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, is Scripture true? Yes. Whatever is honorable, is Scripture honorable? Yes. Whatever is just, is Scripture just? Yes. Whatever is pure, is Scripture pure? Yes. Whatever is lovely, is Scripture lovely? Yes. Whatever is commendable, is Scripture commendable? Yes. If there is anything excellent, is Scripture excellent? Yes. If there's anything worthy of praise, is Scripture worthy of praise? Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Think about these things. Be careful what you expose yourself to. We live in the age of a, where we can access massive amounts of information. But please start here. And let me say this, just end here. Trust the Holy Spirit. If you're wavering, 
If you're wavering, go back to the Bible. Do not go to some source on the internet. The, the Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Our adversary, Satan, is going about as a what? A roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Don't fall prey to this. Those who do not know the truth cannot spot error. I don't study cults and false religions. I don't. You know what I study? Truth. Because when I know the truth, I can spot the counterfeit. Those who do not place a high value on God's truth are easily led astray. And that's exactly what Paul had in mind here when he said, it is safe for you. As he reminded them of, about the false teachers and the false teaching, he was helping to make them more stable. That's what, it, that's what Paul has in mind here. That's what it means, safe for you. I'm helping you to be more stable in your Christian walk. That's why, to me, it is so offensive when pastors get up in pulpits and they never deal with doctrine. You're setting your, quote-unquote, flock up for failure. Paul was shoring up their, their spiritual foundation. There's a sermon title that I've never forgotten. It doesn't matter who preached it, but the, and there, there's some value in, in what was said. But the you know, sermon title goes, uh, uh, how, how to keep your kids on your team. Certainly there's some help in maybe a blog post like that. But if that's not rooted in the Scriptures, if I'm not showing you how to doctrinally bring up your family, listen, my homespun wisdom it ain't going to keep your kids on your team. Satan's after your kids. You have to confront error with truth. Well, that's free for what it's worth. The point is, false doctrine would not allow them to experience the joy that God has for them. Joy comes when we cease striving in the flesh and we rest in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we'll see this next week. What was Paul's goal? That I may gain Christ and be found in Him Paul says, you know, there at the end of verse 11 that he, he's going to, that, that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You know, is he just hoping to live again? No, no. The resurrection from the dead will mean that he has attained the righteousness of Christ. Joy comes from sound doctrine. Therefore, the thief of joy is all false doctrine. Let me show you this. It's pretty clear in Scripture that biblical joy is many times, often, very often, equated with 
sound doctrine. Let me give you just three verses. You can write them down and look them up later. First one is David in Psalm 19, verse 8. He said, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Say, well, what are the precepts of the Lord? It's God's word. Now, what, what is the effect of God's word on our hearts? Rejoicing. It doesn't drag us down, doesn't tear us down, doesn't depress us, discourage us. It brings rejoicing, rejoicing the heart. Psalm 119, verse 14, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Testimonies, again, are a reference to the scriptures. David delighted in them. David received joy from God's word. Do you see the emerging pattern here? Knowledge of God's word, the practice of sound doctrine, leads to joy. How about this? Jesus said in John 15, verses 10 and 11, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Now, there's a condition. If, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, here's what happens when we fulfill the condition. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Do you see the connection again? Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, in other words, if you obey me, if you obey the scriptures, then you will abide in my love. And then Jesus goes on to explain why he is teaching this to us. If we will keep his commandments, if we will obey the scriptures, if we will practice sound doctrine, if we pursue the righteousness and peace that can only be found in him, then we will experience joy. Now, here's the key. Whose joy is it? His joy. And how much joy does he make available to us? Abundant joy. Infinite joy. We can honestly say infinite joy. We will never be able to exhaust the joy that he has for us. If you keep my commandments, if you obey the scriptures, if you practice sound doctrine. In other words, if you apply the truths of scripture to your life, if you pursue holiness... Then you will experience joy. Now, I'll just let Jesus have the last word this morning. So the choice is yours. You know the source of joy in the Lord. You know what allows you to experience joy, pursuing righteousness, peace. You also know what will keep you from joy. And you know how much joy is available to you. The question is, are you ready to take advantage of what God has made available to you? And here's what I want you to see, beloved. If you are in Christ, you have immediate access to this joy. You don't have to apply for it. You don't have to go online and fill out a form like I did to get my COVID shot. You don't have to enter a lottery. You don't have to buy a ticket. You have immediate access to it. It's yours right here right now. If you're not a believer, you too can have access to this joy, but you have to first believe in Christ. And then, and only then, can you experience the joy of Christ.